0: Hello and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I am Jens Nelson. And I am Lucas Stock. This is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life, striving for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. So, Lucas. So, how you doing, man? What's new? What's going on in the world, Uh, I guess, for those that don't know we're recording this Sunday December 20th so we're quickly approaching uh Christmas and uh, whoop, the fulfillment whoop. of the Advent season I guess as we move on into the rest of the church
1: calendar so what's on your mind dude uh not much <laughs> <laughs> um Christmas I guess I'm I'm super excited for Christmas as I, as you know I guess most people probably are Um, and really looking forward to that. So that's five days away, you know, got Thursday's Christmas Eve, Friday's Christmas, got a nice four day weekend because of that really works out well. Um, Yeah. I mean, other than that, mostly been a pretty low key month for me really since the semester ended. I've just kind of been, you know, compared to, you know, the way the semester ended, I just, I've just been chilling. So yeah. What about you? Yeah,
0: Man, not, not a whole lot is going on. Uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty chill around here too. Um, also excited for Christmas, excited to hopefully get a few books, um, for Christmas. I'm, I'm starting to realize that, uh, both my bookshelf and my wife's bookshelf are now packed to the brim and I don't even have all my books on it. Uh, so we're already <laughs> talking about like, you know, getting a new, <laughs> Getting a new bookshelf soon. Um, ooh, exciting news! I guess it's well. I think it's exciting. We we ordered a new mattress last night. Um, oh, that is exciting. so. We've we've had like an old mattress that is like, I don't even remember where it came from. I think it was Hannah's um, when she was like in high school and then into college, and we've had it the f- almost five years that we've been married, and it, it's it, it's just kind of time for a new one. Plus, her parents um, need that one back, and so we were like, yeah, we'll, we'll get a new mattress. Um, it's a long story, but um, that's pretty exciting. Uh, I, I think I'll also say uh, for those of you who are listening to this episode on Tuesday, uh, you know what? What are you going to do as you travel to your family? Although hopefully maybe I don't know. Our, it, first of all, be safe. But second of all, you know if you happen to be traveling, listen to our Friday episode. Uh, it's it's interesting to me that Tuesday episodes always outperform Friday episodes. Um, which I think mm-hmm. is just sort of the nature of our our conversational episodes versus our Christians of history and or creeds and confessions. Um, but give it a listen. I mean, what else? What else do you have to do? So, at the, I'll, yeah, it's without, Christmas,
1: right? You got to get away from the fam, right? Right. Yeah. got oh, wait, when no. You gotta get away good. I forget.
0: Go hide up in an attic or something. Listen to the podcast. It'll be. It'll yeah. be great. But it's
1: better than our words because now that we're doing creeds and confessions, it's, it's we're just reading people who are better than us say it's things true. that are smarter than we could say.
0: And it's all very important. But It's a win-win. Right. Well, <laughs> as you may have already gleaned from our, our title, I guess, for for this episode, this is going to be some sort of baptism showdown. So if mm-hmm. you've been a listener for any amount of time, you'll know that we've already had an episode on baptism. We had an episode even before then on the sacraments uh, just in general. And so this idea has come up before, and we don't want this episode to be re- retreading the, you know, the ground we've already kind of covered. We also don't want it to just be redundant and, uh, you know, like, why are you doing this? So th- this isn't going to be an informational episode about baptism, saying here's what baptism is, here's what baptism, baptism isn't. Uh, instead... Uh, I think I think if I remember correctly, sometime this week, Lucas and I were just kind of having a conversation. Uh, I don't know if it was about a tweet originally or what, but we were like, "Let's have an episode that is basically titled, Lucas convinces Jens to be paedo-baptist. And again, if you if you know us at all, if you've listened to our podcast, Lucas is uh, Anglican and affirms infant baptism. I'm a Baptist that would be a believer, um, uh, believes in believer's baptism. Um, So we, we obviously have different points of view. We have different theological convictions. And I think I even told Lucas, like, I want to hold to infant baptism. I just have a really hard time getting myself to that point. And so I told Lucas, like, don't hold back. Give me everything you got. See what you can do to convince me to be in the infant baptism camp. And so this episode is going to be uh, structured really more as a conversation. I have some questions that I want to ask Lucas. I'm sure he has questions that he wants to ask me. But we're really just going to duke it out, fight to the death, last man standing wins, and that's the end of the debate. No unity here. This settles it. No (laughs) unity. This is is just like gung-ho. Whoever wins this battle, this is going down in theological journals and record books for the next several millennium. Um, So... (laughs) Probably not, that's a joke, or but. something or, or something. <laughs> so, without any further ado, um, let's let's just get into it here. Um, i I guess I'll start with a question to Lucas to get this okay. conversation rolling. Um, my question is, to what extent are children part of the new covenant? And maybe to help color this question, what I'm trying to think about is, in one sense, what you know, what is baptism? Uh, an entrance into the church, um, a rite that we perform. Um, Like these are sort of the things that help color uh, the question. Um, But really, I guess the, the way that I want you to think about this, Lucas, is for an infant who has been baptized, what does that mean for them as it pertains to being part of the new covenant community known
1: as the church? I think that is a helpful question it's not where my mind goes to start, but I think it's probably a really, really good place to start. So um, I am glad that you asked it. I think the the short answer is that I would want to say at least the way I would want to put it is that children are part of the the New Covenant community. Children are like... You know, to what extent are children a part of the new covenant? They are a part of the new covenant to the extent that children were a part of the Mosaic Covenant or the Abrahamic covenant in um you know before Christ, before the institution of the new the new covenant with Christ's life, death and resurrection and ascension. Children, God chose in you know, his wisdom, in his desire, his designs, um, God chose to interact with his people on earth in such a way with starting with Abraham that children were a part of that community and i don't believe what you know what i would say in terms of the new covenant is i don't believe that that is an area of discontinuity between old and new covenants um so insofar as we look at the church or describe the church as a covenant community which this is definitely a fairly not exclusively, but it's definitely a reformed way of speaking about the church, um, at least in my, you know, reading and experience. Listening to uh, people who are, you know, more reformed or who come from a more reformed tradition, um, the you know the reformed confessions, um, a, a big emphasis with you know a sort of generically covenant theology perspective is. Looking at the way God interacts with His people in terms of, you know, covenant being one of the chief ways to parse that out. So, looking at the, you know, God's people today is the church. That's a covenant community. And so, insofar as we want to use that, you know, descriptor for the church, which I think is a very good descriptor for the church. I don't think it gets at everything that the church is or does, but it certainly is God's covenant community, His new covenant community, um, the fulfillment of Israel in the sense that um God you know has expanded what he promised to Abraham has come to fruition as he has expanded not just to Jews that he enters into a covenant with or the people of Israel but also all nations and all tribes um which is something that we we knew from the beginning with Abraham that he was doing um but we we live in an age where he has done that um which is why we the church is not an ethnic group the church is a um a community a covenant community of faith, not a covenant community of um merely one you know people group or nation, right um, which is not to say that Israel didn't have faith or that you know anything like that. Um, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that um ethnicity is no longer a marker for the people of God the way that it once was. Um, and I would turn to Galatians. There's no longer Jew nor Greek, right, slave right. nor female nor female to sort of back that up. Um, so insofar as the church, the people of God are a covenant community, a community gathered together under the new covenant with God, um, children are a part of that in a way that is, that is very similar to the way that uh, Hebrew children were a part of Abrahamic, the Abrahamic covenant. And um, to just kind of say this in a different way question 129 of the acna's catechism to be a christian um, asks why is it appropriate to baptize infants and and the answer is because it is a sign of god's promise that they are embraced in the covenant community of christ's church those who in faith and repentance present infants to be baptized vow to raise them in the knowledge and fear of the lord with the expectation that they will one day profess full christian faith as their own Um, and then it cites uh verses from Deuteronomy, Proverbs, Mark, and Acts. So um, the, the role that a child plays in the covenant is not one of outsider or potential member, but it is the, way, it is the role of a infant or young member of the covenant community. So I, I don't know okay. if that answers... I, I think it answers I, your question. I think I, so.
0: I, I, I want to press it a little bit further and answer with a follow-up question. Um, So I'm going to first preface by reading Jeremiah 31, because it's Old Testament, Old Covenant, anticipating a New Covenant. So I'm going to read Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And it says, Look, the days are coming, this is the Lord's declaration, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. So as I'm sort of processing what you had to say, as I've processed, um, you know, the infant baptism side of things, uh, one thing that I've had a really hard time understanding, and this is maybe one of the biggest hurdles that I have in in getting getting to the infant baptism argument. Um, So what does baptism do to an infant? Um, What I mean is if we're talking about the new covenant, it's not a covenant that's surrounded or its, its parameters are not ethnic just like the old covenant was ethnic israel as we've already said um, so it's made up of believers i would say that the, the, the true new covenant community um, even if there are unbelievers in our midst even if you have people who aren't actual christians coming to your church um, on sundays like i would say that the new covenant body is made up of people who have been regenerated born again are are true and, and genuine believers um, and so what do we say of an infant who has been baptized? So obviously, I think it's fair to say that an infant, a newborn, cannot make such a profession of faith. Um, so what, what, do, what is different in the infant baptism argument from the believer's baptism argument, if that makes sense? Like what... What does baptism accomplish for that infant, especially if that infant grows up to never believe, Uh, if they grow up and never have a profession of faith? Um, As I'm sure many of you know, I'm sure you have tons of friends, family members, people that you can point to to say, this person was baptized as an infant, um, and they at no point in their life have lived a Christian life, have never shown any fruit of of being a Christian. So what was the, maybe you could ask, what was the point of their baptism, or what does their baptism accomplish? Am I making any sense?
1: Yeah, yeah, you're make, definitely making sense. Um, I think there's a few pieces and I might go out of order here, but I want to try and tackle everything to get as full a picture of, as possible. Um, so I'll start with, you know, what about the, the way I would phrase this question? It's funny, I, I phrased this in my notes, not knowing, not, you know, before I even looked at what you had prepared. What about those who are baptized as, inf- as infants and then don't believe? Um, for me, I, I'm going to, you know uh, what's the word? I'm gonna maintain. I'm going. I'm going to argue that this is a non-issue because this still happens with people who are not baptized until they profess faith when they're you know old enough. You know, a teenager, an adult. You know, whatever whatever would would qualify as believers' baptism age, right? Um, like you said, I, I know people personally who were not baptized as infants, made a profession of faith. Has to be baptized, were baptized, um, and do not live and have consciously and explicitly communicated a rejection of the faith. So, to me, the question of what happens, or, or what what's going on, or what is accomplished, or what is the point, or you know, what what is it about people who are baptized and then later don't believe, is not a question about infant baptism. It's a question about baptism. And how do we relate baptism in general, regardless of the age, to later apostasy, lack of faith, um, and a rejection of, of, of Christ? Because I don't think you or anybody would say that only people who are baptized as infants later go on to reject the faith, and people who are baptized as, as adults or believers never fall away later. So to me, I don't think that that's actually a question that is directly pertinent to proving who should or shouldn't be baptized. Well, that's As true, much as I, a, a broader question of what is going on when someone who receives baptism later falls away.
0: Right, and I understand. I understand that. Like, I, I, I get, I get that there are people, regardless of age, that get baptized that prove to not be Christians. I guess what I'm trying to, what I'm, the question I really want to know is, like, what, what is the efficacy, if that's the right word, of baptism in an infant? So -hmm. what I'm trying to say is, are we talking about baptismal regeneration, meaning that a person who has been baptized has been regenerated only later to fall away? Um, Is, is baptism in an infant a precursor um, to a baptism that happens later, but through the Spirit, not another washing, um, like, an outward baptism? Um, I'm just trying to understand, like... Why baptize an infant? Because you know, I know, maybe maybe people who have grown up more broadly evangelical can can think of something like a baby dedication versus like an infant baptism. They're a very similar purpose, I think. Like it's a, it's a parent who is committed to, I think, as you said, to raise a child in admonition and the fear of the Lord, to um, be a spiritual guide. Um, the church also affirms that they will be an aid in in that mission of of raising a, a child. Um, so, yeah, my, my question to you is like what, I guess my original question was, what is, what is the point of baptizing an infant um, if, especially if, it isn't going to lead to something later? I guess, I don't know.
1: Well, I think it, I think it does lead to something later. I think the, the efficacy of baptism is exactly the right theological word for it, is the same no matter the age the what baptism what a valid baptism does is not dependent on our faith or our own decisions or our own actions or professions regardless of our age um what does you know i've been spending some time recently in a variety of protestant um confessions of faith and catechisms on the question of baptism. Just not, not even related to this episode, it was just like a, a nice coincidence that it was the same week I was doing that, um, that we were preparing for this, but um, in my, you know, to so what baptism communicates to an infant is the same thing that it communicates to an adult because infants are part of the covenant community, assuming that they are the, the, the children of members of the covenant community. Um, I think that that's an important thing. Um, And all, what was really interesting to me, you know, unsurprisingly, the Anglican 39 articles talk about um, regeneration in connection with baptism. Obviously, Rome and Eastern Orthodoxy, you know, being, you know, very rooted in ancient sources, talk about baptismal regeneration. Um, The Lutherans... Even you know much more than the Anglicans. Very big on baptismal regeneration in their confessions and catechisms um, and and their own theologizing. To my surprise, (laughs) to my surprise, um, every Reformed capital R Reformed confession that I interacted with or have interacted with affirms that baptism communicates regeneration. there's a there's a you know there's going to be nuance in how we want to interpret that and how the different traditions are going to interpret that, um, but you know what I will say is if we go to the 1689 London Baptist Confession, we see that baptism to is ordained by Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of His fellowship with Him in His death and resurrection, being ingrafted into Him, remission of sins giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. And I think that is a fine, outstanding explanation of baptism, full stop. Um, and I think that nobody would read that. No, no 1689 Baptist would read that and raise the question of where does faith fit into that? Um, water can't do that. Of course water can't can't do that. The Holy Spirit does that. And it goes on to say, the Spirit washes you internally as the water washes you externally, which is a motif that comes up in all the confessions that I've read. And because it's a biblical motif of, you know, the washing of regeneration as baptism is called in Titus. And so, so yeah, you know, I, I, I'm i not scared of saying, however we want to parse this out is, is, is maybe a, a rabbit trail for another day, um, that regeneration is a piece of baptism. And this goes. This will get into some disagreements that we've already, you know, talked about that you and I personally have, as well as different strands of Christianity over what does it mean for someone to fall away from the faith? What does it mean for someone to be regenerated? Can someone be regenerated and then fall away? You know, like that kind of those questions come up here. You know, we don't necessarily need to dive into them. I don't. You know, I don't. I don't think we need to dive into them now. Um, but. They definitely come up here. But I would say that what, what, what's happening in an infant baptism that's different than a baby dedication is that a child is receiving the Holy Sacrament instituted by Christ for ingrafting into his body, the church, and in in, in receiving the gifts um, of that community, the gifts that the Holy Spirit is going to be walking with this child in the expectation that he will uh, look back you know, or you know, I guess I should be specific. He or she, um, which is part of the point of you know circumcision baptism. He or she will will look back and know. You know, as Luther said, will return to their baptism. Their baptism is not something they did. Their baptism is not something that their parents did, or godparents did, or pastor, um, or or community, or church. That's something that God did to them and for them, and it's a promise that God made that is true no matter what they decide to do with it later in life and what they should do with it and what in an ideal world everyone would do with it is be able to look back and say, look at what God did and I'm going to, in faith, receive that promise. It's not, you know, faith is not me grabbing something. Faith is simply me acknowledging something that God did as true and efficacious and uh, saving for me. That's what you know. That's what saving faith is. It's not me doing something that makes me saved. It's me receiving salvation. So I think I think again. Hopefully, I've answered you know what you're, yeah, a little you're getting bit. at.
0: Well, I have I have a, I have a, a question that relates. Um, so there's a there's a sec, there's a section I think like in Romans, if I'm remembering correctly, um, where basically Paul says um, like. There are those who are we're not part of true Israel, but like we're in Israel. What I'm what I'm trying to say is like because Isra- because the old covenant was ethnic, um, it, it revolved around a, a, a nation of Israel. Not everybody who was circumcised, not everybody who lived as a Jew within the nation of Israel was part of true Israel as a part of the believing community. There was I'm sure there are plenty of of to use a anachronistic term, but like unregenerate. Israel. Um, so are we making a a correlation even within the church that, that there are those who have received the sign of the covenant? So in the old covenant, it was circumcision in the new covenant. we're, We're talking about baptism. Could it be true that there are people who have received that sign who are not a part of the covenant community or the true Israel, the true church? if that makes sense.
1: You're saying people have received circumcision or baptism but are not part of the community, I'm as saying, in externally part of the community? No, no, no.
0: I'm saying eternally.
1: Gotcha. <laughs> um, yeah.
0: because Okay, for example, yeah, yeah. let's just say there's a wicked king in, 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 in Israel. I'm sure that that wicked king had been circumcised in his youth. Um, however, the life that he lived, the life that was... You know, I'm trying to think of, like, um, a king that was really wicked. Um, Jeroboam, was he a good one or a bad one? I don't remember. Uh, I I can't remember. (laughs) He has. I don't know. Think of the wicked kings in Israel after Mm -hmm. David, before the the intertestamental period. Um, I'm sure it would be safe to say that those are people who are not in Abraham's bosom or in the life to come, um, so to speak because of the wickedness in which they lived their lives on earth. So in one sense, they were a part of the community. They had a very, especially the Kings had a huge responsibility, um, yet did not live in light of the reality that had been communicated to them. So is the true same or similar to baptism that there are people who can receive the sign of the covenant who externally can appear to be a part of that community who later in life show to not have actually truly been a part of that community?
1: Yes. And I think this goes back to what I said before. This is true regardless of the age that you practice baptism or, you know, age or stage or whatever. Um, and because there are adults who get baptized who apostatize, you know, what do we do with that? It's the same question. Um, I, I think that you cannot look at the old covenant and say, oh, well, that king was a sinner. He, he rejected the Lord. He had no faith in Yahweh. Um, he was not saved. He was not part of Israel. That's not true. He was a part of the covenant of Israel according to the covenant that God gave to Abraham in obedience to that covenant. That's the sign of circumcision. He was a part, you know, and also the Mosaic covenant, um, which I will say circumcision precedes the Mosaic covenant. So when you're reading Jeremiah and we look at the covenant that um, that is being abrogated, that is being, you know, the one. The new covenant will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. So that's not the Abrahamic covenant, because um, the Abrahamic covenant talks about eternal blessing coming from the family of Abraham. That's not being done away with in the new covenant. That that the new covenant is the fulfillment of that part of the Abrahamic covenant. Um, the the kings who were evil, the individual Israelites who were evil, who who lived, uh, you know, under the Mosaic Covenant, under the Abrahamic Covenant, who received the sign of circumcision as possible and applicable, who rejected faith in Yahweh, who 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 offered false sacrifices or, or even just chose not to sacrifice, whatever the case may be in an, in an old covenant context. Um, no, I don't believe that they were exhibiting saving faith. However, they were a part of the covenant community. They were failing, because remember what a covenant is. It's a two-way agreement they were fail. god had been faithful to them on his side of the covenant they were not being faithful to god on their side of the covenant and that's not meant to be a, a a discussion of you know predestination election all that kind of stuff that that's not what i'm talking about i'm just i'm just talking about in in very human terms like we have a responsibility to fulfill our side of the covenant which is faith in christ you know or in old testament times following the law you know i think you get what i'm saying and so I think this applies to everyone, regardless of when you baptize people. And I also think that this gets more into what is baptism, in terms of what do we do with people who receive the sign of the covenant and then turn out to not be in the covenant in in the eternal, you know, elect sense of, of that idea. That that is a very tough question. Um, I think that it's You know, for me, part of the answer comes to my position on true apostasy, which we've talked about in a previous episode. I don't think that's the whole answer. I don't think, you know, I'm not saying I have a cornerstone or or monopoly on the answer there. I'm just saying um, that is a little bit more in terms of, like you're saying, the efficacy of baptism. I just don't see that as being a big difference between a credo-baptist and a pedo-baptist position when it comes down to the very specific question of, why baptize or not baptize infants as opposed to what do we believe is going on in baptism? because clearly there are also big differences in what different traditions believe is going on in baptism, right. But like we said at the beginning, that's not really our, our focus here. Um, hmm. So I well, guess so
0: maybe maybe we should have like done this a long time ago. Um, but obviously the scripture should be our our source as we as we try to understand what is going on here. Um, what has been instituted um, so one one question that i 've always had on this ar- on this argument, especially so circumcision is very explicitly commanded and taught in the Old Testament, whereas infant baptism is not. I know that there are arguments about um, you and your household need to be baptized, but I think that's a little bit up to interpretation on what household means um, and again, I know that's up for debate. Some people would be like, "Household means those living in your house." Um, maybe, uh, but the, I guess one of my one of my very difficult. Maybe it's difficult to answer. But w- why? So if if we're saying that there's a correlation, or some some people might say a one to one of circumcision to baptism, why would there? Which not I would not be, say. Right, to, to I, I agree. Fair. So maybe maybe even if there's just correlation. Why would there not be, especially if baptism is so much more important? Because it's not just to the males. It's to men. It's to women. It's to the believers. It's part of a new covenant, a better covenant. Why would there not be an explicit command in the New Testament regarding infant baptism? Because there's plenty, plenty. All you have to do is look up the word baptism. There's plenty (laughs) of examples of like teaching, um, people talking about the importance of it, what it means, like, why was there, why, was it just assumed, like, so in the mind, like, when Paul was writing, when, when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when all these people were sitting down to write their letters or their gospels, was there just an assumption that, like, the reader is going to understand because of the old covenant that, like, this new sign is going to be, just kind of treat it the same way? Um, would it have been something that was taught by word of mouth and then passed along by the apostles to the church fathers and then... Um, goes along through church history, um, and, and I'm going to point real quick to, to Acts 16, because I think it's one that, that will come up often. Um, this is 31 through 34. It says, They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, along with everyone in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized. Okay, so there's, there's an example of, of somebody, of, of a guy, him and his family are baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, bef- set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. So I know people will point to this as an example of like, look, this person and his entire household were baptized. But I'm also kind of hung up on the whole part about belief. There's a, there's a strong emphasis here. It's the, the word belief or believed is mentioned a couple times in this text. Um, it, it, I'm trying to find it again here. Um, so at 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. So these people have heard the word of the Lord. They have heard something. They have believed something about this word of the Lord. Um, and after he brought them into the house, they, they ate a meal and they rejoice because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. So to me, it seems like this is an example of repent, believe, be baptized. That's something that I think comes up time and time again as almost like an equation um, for, for these, these new believer, these new believers who are becoming part of this covenant community. Um, so in, maybe my question is another follow-up question, but what is, the, what is the relation between belief and baptism?
1: Yeah, so really quick, because this is just, I think, a, a shorter one. Why is there no explicit command to apply baptism to infants if there is an explicit command to apply circumcision to infants? Um, the first believers were Jewish, so they would have had an understanding that the covenant includes the, offspring, the infant offspring of, of the people of God. Um, so I do think there is an element. It doesn't, it doesn't account for everything. But I do think there is a certain level of that's the, that's the default. That the, the initial, not the Gentiles necessarily, that's different, but the initial Jewish believers, um, which were the first believers, and they were the apostles, um, or uh, the apostles were Jews. So the that is, I would say, the default um, position that they're coming from. Whether that, that doesn't prove it right or wrong, but that is the default that they're coming from. So I do think the lack of an explicit explanation can somewhat... Be connected with that level of assumption that things are going to continue unless you know continue as they have been unless God tells us otherwise.
0: Can I interject real quick? Of course. I just have just to clarify before it gets too far. Um, So, when we talk about the early Jewish believers having a knowledge of covenant, would the covenant in their mind have been the Mosaic covenant or the Abrahamic covenant? Because what I'm trying to say is like, why would I'm wondering why there would be an assumption. That there would be a continuation of the same things for the early church. Why like, would there in a new covenant? Like I feel like you, because it functions different. Like, the, the the covenants are different. So I th- I would think that even even if there are similarities, that there should at least be clarification on teaching. Because I mean, think about all the t- all the times in which like they had to teach that no, you don't have to first get circumcised to be a Christian. So there had to be even be a clarification on the act, the act of circumcision. Sure, so I'm I'm curious why there would have been like an expectation that now this new sign of baptism functions the same way that circumcision functioned, if that makes sense.
1: Well, if we want to ask, so there is teaching that that baptism and circumcision circumcision are to be linked, and it's straight from Paul in Colossians. Um, he, call, he says that the circumcision of Christ is baptism. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which, baptism, the circumcision of Christ, you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. So there is a link. Whatever we want to do with that, that that is an, an unquestionable, I think, biblical position to say that, that they both function as signs of the covenant. That, that's not something... That I think is really up for debate. How much you can identify them is a little bit more up for debate, for sure. Um, but there is a link. They are the sign of the covenant. They are the 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 you know they you know the this is you know we could term them both sacraments of initiation, right? Um, however, there's I guess the question would be there's continuity between covenants and discontinuity. They're not the same covenant. But, but they are a covenant from the same God. So, if God's gonna change his mo of of how He relates to children, they are no longer part of the community who receive the sign. Um, I could just throw the question back to you. Why would he not tell us that that's what he's doing? And we could go back and forth forever. I'm not interested in doing that. but there's there's no explicit um commands to baptize infants. There's no explicit command to not baptize infants, and if it was such a big deal, wouldn't somebody have thought we need to tell people about this? Wouldn't it come up when they're explaining how Christians interact with circumcision? No, you don't get circumcised. You know, if you're a Gentile who believes on Christ, you don't get circumcised first. You don't have to. That's gone away. We have something. We have the fulfillment of that. You just need to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That seems like a pretty solid time to, to to discuss the relationship between circumcision and baptism, which they're doing, and saying you don't need circumcision anymore if you don't have it. Paul says circumcision counts for nothing now. Um, and yet it doesn't come up then. So I think that we can get stuck in this infinite loop of, if it was so important to baptize your babies, why didn't he tell us to? Well, if it was so important that you don't baptize your babies, why didn't he tell us to? And we're kind of stuck on this, well... Neither of us have chapter and verse do or don't do this. So it's not really worth spinning our wheels on that. Um, and I'm not, I, I just bring that up to to kind of be like, not to get out of the question of answering your question, but just to to sort of illustrate that it's, this this is an an issue that similar to what about apostasy, <laughs> this is an issue that both sides face. There's no explicit command to only do one or the other. And another question you asked is is um, Acts 16, the relation of faith and baptism. Um, right. I'm, I'm kind of ripping this out of context, but um, our favorite systematic theology by Robert Lethem that we reference a lot. Um, I haven't
0: referenced him in so long, though. It if, used to be I mean... like
1: every episode, and now it's, it's been a while. But sorry, Rob. Um, Glad you're resurrecting it. <laughs> um, so in his discussion of, of baptism, he has a section where he talks about who is to be baptized, and it's just a... It's just an explanation of credo-baptism versus pedo-baptism. He is Presbyterian. He falls down on pedo-baptism. You know, that's very clear. He's not being sneaky, whatever. Um, But for pedo-baptism, this is is him, quote, For pedo-baptism, faith and baptism are the inside and outside of the same reality, salvation. Grace gives rise to both, the temporal sequence being indeterminate. And that's the conclusion of a paragraph You know, it. I'm rip. Like I said, I'm ripping it out of its context, but it. You know, as much as it can, while being decontextualized, I think it serves as a very eloquent answer to to that question, where there's not a faith versus baptism, um. You know, dynamic going on. There for for, I will say this for Pado Baptists, we're not talking about what saves me. Faith or baptism? Um, that's not the question. And and for for particularly and especially for um, Protestant and Reformation uh, pedobaptists who hold to sola fide, um, it's 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 obviously it would just be dramatically inconsistent for it to be, you know, which one saves me? Oh, baptism? You know, no, you're saved by faith alone. Faith, like I said before faith is the reception of the promises of God, which are given to you in baptism. That's enough. That's one way to say it. Um, the inside and outside of the same reality is a very, I think much more beautiful way of putting it <laughs> that let them has, um, you know, earlier in that paragraph, he says, um, God's grace comes first. Baptism relates primarily to God's grace rather than our faith. Um, and he, he goes on, he cites a whole bunch of bunch of verses, which I'm not gonna just read um, that, but but it it it's a lot of the a lot of verses that we've talked about or will or might talk about. But um it's there's not a competition, there's not a tug and pull. Um, to say that he rejoiced because he believed is not to somehow minimize to say or minimize what was just said about him being baptized, and to to highlight or to say that he was baptized is not to somehow minimize or go against what's what comes next that he believed. Um, what's interesting, you know, if, if we're just talking like lit, from a literary perspective, baptism comes first <laughs> in that story. Um, you know, the rejoice of his belief uh, is not divorced from his baptism. You know what I mean? Um, it it it's not something that is pitted against each other is what I'm trying to say. So I, I would not disagree at all. You know, I, I couldn't because the verse says this, but, but even if I wanted to, I would have no interest in disagreeing with the idea that um, that man and his family were, were saved by faith in Christ, because that's how we're saved. That is not a contradictory statement to those children or, or all of them. I'm not even going to forget children. Um, that 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 man and his family were saved by baptism and how can i say that the the bible says that peter tells us that baptism saves us and again this is a question of what is baptism that we're not going to unpack everything right now but how can peter inspired by the holy spirit say baptism now saves you if that statement contradicts salvation by faith alone which is so abundantly clearly the teaching of the new testament i mean the both testaments um and what I would say is he can say that inspired by the Holy Spirit because it's not a contradiction. It's, once again, the inside and outside of the same reality, God's work of salvation, of saving his people. Um, okay. And there's there's I mean, I'm sure there's like a million more things to be said there. Yeah. Uh, but but I guess I, I don't know if I, I don't want to like cut you off. um if you have more you like follow up. questions. I have like
0: one more thing I want to ask. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think I had the, I had a thought in my mind. Um, so I'm trying to think of how to best word it. Uh, okay, so when it comes to this conversation of, of baptism, uh, I think a lot of times it can be a very heated, very divisive topic. Um, I, for a while on Facebook, I was a part of the Reformed pub. Um, which was a Facebook group that was associated with the Reformed Pubcast, which was an old um, podcast. Uh, and I swear, like daily, there were just threads and threads and <laughs> never-ending debates on baptism between 1689ers and Presbyterians. Um, so I, I can, I've seen firsthand how heated this th- sort of thing can get. Um, I hope that the listener has not seen anything heated in this conversation. I hope that this conversation has been a, a model or at least a, a dim model of what it looks like to have a charitable, just casual conversation between brothers. Um, my, my closing question for you, as we begin to wind down, can we make baptism, how we practice baptism, whether it's infant or believer's baptism, is, is it fair to say that it's a matter of conscience because scripture isn't abundantly clear on the matter? Because there is no verse saying this way or that way um, to baptize infants. Is it, in your estimation, is it fair to say that like Baptists, for example, who would hold to a believer's baptism, is it okay that their conscience does not allow them to baptize infants and they only baptize believers? Or would you be under the the persuasion um, that Baptists are in error and thus need to change their viewpoint maybe over time or immediately? Or maybe you don't want to answer it, and that's fine. I'm just, I'm just trying to think, like, because th- we've had this conversation, by me and you, I mean, we've had this before. But the church at large has had this conversation, obviously, for hundreds of years. Um, maybe not thousands of years. Maybe not as long as the church has existed. Obviously, for me as a Baptist, church history, in a sense, is against me. I don't have uh, the same... I can't point to church history as an example of look how long we only practice believers baptism because most of church history would have been believing in and affirming an infant baptism. Um, But I think it's still fair to say that this conversation has been going on for a long time, very wise and educated people, much smarter, more intelligent than me that can really dig into the meaning of these words, the Greek, the Hebrew, um, biblical scholars who even differ in debate. And like, you know, there are some people who I really respect who are, Infant Baptists, if that's the right way to refer I like them. it. We should we, yeah, should, infant baptists, we should start using it. And then it. there's believer believers baptists. Um so like wh- wh- yeah, what's your answer to that question that I posed? Is it is this a matter of conscience or should we look at this as something that
1: scripture does teach pretty clearly? I think it is a matter of conscience in the sense that as I think was demonstrated in a, at least a small way through this conversation um, there are faithful people who have and continue to hold to these two different positions on the basis of scripture um, and, and a earnest attempt at a faithful interpretation and submission to scripture.
0: Well I think it's fair to say that like no Baptist is like I think I think part of the reason that they are Baptists is they 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 want to hold baptism very highly. They don't want it sure. to be misused. They don't want it to be abused. They want it to be for um, people who are confessing believers. Even if, as we've said, people still prove to not be true believers, the, I think the core of their conviction is still wanting it to be held in a high regard. Yeah, I it's think, not that they're holding it so low that like, oh, we're not going to baptize infants. That's really not that important.
1: Yeah, I, it, I've interacted with less well-minded Baptist ideas, just like I've interacted with all kinds of people who have bad ideas who are not Baptist. I'm just saying, um, I think that you're right in, it, at, at its best, a Baptist, a Credo Baptist position is exactly that, um, is an attempt to, well, yeah, yes. Um, people who who are serious, who have thought this through and come to the position of Believer's Baptism are not doing so To spite what Scripture teaches or what baptism does or is, Um, that I agree with you, and I do think that you can, as faithful people seeking the truth, come to differing conclusions. So in that, and we're not talking about something like the Trinity is Jesus God, you know am I a sinner? You know, like these kinds of questions that get to the core of what it means to be saved. Obviously baptism is at the core of what it means to be saved in one sense. Um, But we're also not debating whether or not we practice baptism. That would be a much harsher debate, I think, Um, which is not what's going on. Um, Although some people might say that an infant baptism is not a baptism. Um, That's certainly the conclusion I get when I read the 1689, um, and other Baptist confessions and documents that say immersion is necessary. That is the implication. Um, it, well, not infant baptism, but sprinkling in general, um, which again is a, is a different conversation, not for today. Well, I don't mean to get sidetracked. What I'm trying to say is um, I don't think that everybody who comes to a believer's baptism perspective is doing so because they're either malicious or stupid. I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> um I do believe however that on the on on the basis of scripture um, old and new testament and tradition on a scriptural traditional theological basis I do believe that a credo baptist position is in error and so I would love to see all of my 1689 friends and colleagues and Acquaintances and all all stripes of Baptists start dunking their babies because I think that we should. I think that it is it is right and it is good and I do believe it is God's will. I do not believe it casts you outside of the fold of God's people if you choose not to do that on the basis of your reading of Scripture and and tradition and theology. You, you, you know, um. So so I guess like my my answer to your question is kind of yes, and I don't think those two things. You know matter of conscience or error. Like I think you can, you can be wrong in your matter of conscience. I'm sure I am, you know what I mean? Um, right. On things, um, on many things, you know, maybe even baptism. I'm, I'm, I, as hard as it is and as, as, as contradictory as it feels to say out loud sometimes, um, I, I want to be humble enough to hold everything that I believe firmly and with, convic- with conviction, um, but humbly in that I'm not relying on my own power to know what's right, but I'm submitting to what I am convinced is right. You know, if that makes sense. So, so I do think that you can be wrong, but not because you're, you know, unlearned and just need to be taught what's right or actively, you know, trying to believe what's false. You know what, you know what I mean? Like um, I, 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 I don't think that it, that a credo Baptist church is not a church. On the basis of not baptizing their infants, um, and I think it, it's kind of interesting. I I don't necessarily want to start a whole nother tangent because we are coming up on 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 an hour here. Um, but I would like to sort of throw a question your way to kind of and, and we can kind of like conclude with that. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you make of an infant? baptism you, you, in the sense of like would you rebaptize someone who came to your church you know pretend you're a pastor or whatever pretend you're an elder like someone grew up presbyterian grew up anglican grew up catholic whatever came to your church was a you know wanted to be a member blah blah blah, blah. would you re-baptize them would you not re-baptize them on what basis do you do you give your answer um you know What do you think about a church body that does practice pedo-baptism? You you know, like, like it's kind of, there are kind of like multiple ways that, that I'll just let you kind of talk, but like, I have a lot of thoughts, a lot of different strands in my head, but I'll just, you know, kind of like, 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 what are your, what's your thoughts in terms of like the, you know, the rightness or wrongness or the, the effects of what's going on in a church that does baptize their infants?
0: Right. So I would not rebaptize somebody. And it's interesting because this conversation came up when I was a pastor, as a youth pastor. It didn't, I had no say in the in the matter. I, it wasn't something that was pertaining to me or anybody close to me. But it was a conversation that was had um, regarding somebody who wanted, who felt like they needed to be baptized in order to, to enter the church. And I can't remember what the official stance even of this. I mean, it was called First Baptist Church. So it was traditionally a Baptist church. I can't remember the exact stance on like, if that was required that they be rebaptized or if this person just wanted to be rebaptized, but personally, I would not rebaptize somebody. Um, just like you said earlier, let's, let's say we had somebody who was 12, 15, who as a kid made a profession of faith or made some, you know, <laughs> indication that they wanted to also be baptized. And then they were so that, that uh, this, this, person who is I think of reasonable age um, of cognition to have professed some sort of faith who who got willfully baptized Um, I think I know people who have been in this case who have then later in life when they think that they've come to like you know let's say that they think back to that moment and like that wasn't true and real for me Um, that the moment that I actually became a real a real Christian was actually when I was 25 or whatever Um, I also would not want them to be Rebaptized. So just as you've said, yeah. my hope is that, even regardless of what that first baptism was, my hope is that they can, like you said, it's a promise by God, not something that they, something that they did. So my hope is that they can look back, they can point to their infant baptism, they can point to their twelve-year-old baptism, and be like, that's the promise that has been made to me, and this is the, mm. the sign and seal of my being engrafted into this community. um So I, that's that's like I guess like. Answer one is that yeah I wouldn't want to be rebaptizing somebody. As far as like what I think about a, a community or a congregation that practices infant baptism, um, again because of what I think scripturally and the convictions that I have about baptism, I don't I don't necessarily have a problem with infant baptism if I understand infant baptism correctly. I think there are caricatures, there are bad representations of of baptizing infants. I think there are ways in which um, there are traditions that... I don't know, I'm trying to be careful in what I say, but I, I think that there are dangers, there there can be dangers in baptizing infants. And I'm just, again, I'm thinking back to people that I knew growing up who went to a Catholic church, who went to a Lutheran church, they, they were baptized, they went through confirmation, they had their first communion. Um, but like, it meant nothing other than the fact that like, it was another thing that they did. Like, I went to Boy Scouts, I went to football practice, so I went to confirmation, I, you know. So... Part of it does come down to what is baptism? What does baptism mean for a person living in light of the reality of baptism? Um, but I, I I guess I have more of a problem with people who would teach that baptism in some way would be salvific or necessary to salvation. Um, so what do, you do with,
1: what do you do with Peter saying it is?
0: Well, I, I don't, so I, I don't think that that's what he is saying in the sense that like someone who is dunked or sprinkled in that moment, that does not
1: save them. Well, I don't think he's saying that either, but I think he is saying it's salvific. I think Jesus says those who believe and are baptized will be saved in Mark in Mark
0: 16. Right. I guess I'm thinking of somebody who's just been baptized. Mm-hmm apart sure. from believed
1: and be baptized or if there's any sort of faith and yeah, maybe that this is getting would, into the nitty-gritty yeah, nuance of right, the conversation yeah. that's fair a, i would i right. would that's where i would point back to what letham's talking about where he talked about the inside and outside you know the inward and the outward great the, the inward spiritual grace and the outward external sign you know like i think i think that those questions are answerable but i do think you're right that not everybody answers them faithfully okay right
0: and uh, it's there's 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 A lot to be said on all the different sides from all the different competing theological convictions and um, I don't know there's definitely a lot for me to to think about and to to digest after this conversation because I think there have been things that have been said that have been helpful clarifying um, other things that are still tripping me up so like I'll just say I have not been swayed fully to your persuasion Um, shocker (laughs) <laughs> still going to be sitting in the camp that I found myself in. Brandon Smith, if you are listening, I mean, I didn't really give it my all. And I really didn't even intend to try to sway Lucas. So I'll still chisel away <laughs> at his uh, his arguments. But um, yeah, I guess, I don't know. This is, this is maybe a good place to wrap up the conversation. Maybe the listener feels a little bit uncomfortable not having like a resolution. I don't know if we had one or not. Um, there, maybe there wasn't ever supposed to be one um but i think more than anything this is a really cool conversation it's one that ought to be had it's one that needs to be had with humility um with grace with um brotherly affection like it's sh- i don't think it's always a very good practice to have these conversations over social media um yeah. you can't hear inflection you can't hear tone you have 240 characters or whatever if you're on twitter or you have to have like 15 threads going and you're like no one wants <laughs> to read that um, so I think that this is, a, I hope at least, at the very least, a good model of having a good charitable conversation discussing the in and outs of a theological matter. Um, and at the end of the day, a lot of theological issues aren't black and white. It's not always clear cut and you know, easy to understand. So, yeah, um, it's it's murky. It's it's fun to have these conversations. And at the end of the day, I think it's fair to say Lucas and I both hold baptism highly. I also don't like Baptists who just let anybody get baptized or don't do a good job of, like, vetting sounds bad, but, like, actually meeting with and having conversations with the people that want to get baptized. Um, So I think that there are issues in in my camp, too, and I'm not trying to um, shove those under the rug and hide them, but I I would want to expose the various issues in my own tradition. Um, But I, I want to hold baptism highly enough that, my convictions are because I hold it highly.
1: Yeah. And I would just want to echo everything you said in terms of this conversation and the nature of this type of conversation in terms of um, recognizing with humility how we talk about things and what we believe and and how we are able to be critical of ourselves, our camps, um, in a way that I think humility demands we do. Um, And, yeah, I just hopefully, you know, I would want to reiterate that hopefully— um, this kind of, you know, this episode and, and hopefully every episode, but especially the ones we do that are more like this in terms of content and structure are able to to help you think through things that maybe you haven't thought through if, if you know, you find yourself on one side or the other or, or unconvinced either way. And, you know, like maybe hopefully it was helpful from like an information side of thing to a certain extent, but, but especially um, just to be an, an example not in in a sense of like a perfect example, but in the sense of just an, an attempt of two people trying to, to the best of our ability, actually have charitable, uh, you know, in, in a sense, charitable, ecumenical, you know, principled ecumenism um, kind of conversations in a way that is not at each other's throat, uh, not trying to sweep our own faults under the rug, but also not trying to, you know, just win a debate, or uh, you know, like rack up points at the other person's expense, or whatever. You, you know, like just seeking this honest, charitable, theological discussion um, on a topic that we come at different perspectives from, and I think that that ought to be the norm that that the church is able to have these conversations in this way, where we're not fighting and yelling and condemning, and even where we we truly do believe that the other one is wrong on this issue. You know, that's that's not trying to be minimized here. It's just that doesn't mean we're <laughs> hostile, <laughs> and uh, it doesn't have to mean that ever, you know? Not that we don't have those differences, but that those differences don't need to be expressed angrily or with venom or, or um, you know, in any other way other than two believers striving for unity amongst our diversity. Um and uh, on that note, uh, I do want to thank everybody for listening to this longer than they've been recently episodes. And then also um, in light of everything we just said, thank you for having this conversation with me in a way that I think is, um, even though I feel like I did a lot more answering than, than asking, maybe we'll do the reverse of this one day where I ask you more questions, but uh, I wouldn't hold my breath for that, but maybe we will. One day. <laughs> but um, for your th- thoughtful answers and questions i think like just thanks for this conversation and being able to have it in this way where we're really actually i think conversating and not just talking at each other um Hmm. so i appreciate that and um appreciate everyone listening um before we move into uh praying out uh are you reading anything that's interesting
0: yeah actually um i mean (laughs) Uh, this maybe is a book that I, I'm, I just started it last night, so I've read the introduction and first chapter, um, but it's Finding the Right Hills to Die On, and it's a, a case for theological triage. It's by Gavin Ortland, um, a really popular book this year, I think a really important book this year, uh, but it, it's going to deal with this issue of um, basically when when doctrine divides, such as baptism... Um, how do we how do we think about that what do we do when we have disagreements even amongst the same tradition um, and so I think al moler maybe but other people have expounded on this idea of, of theological triage uh, essentially I think I've mentioned it before but if you haven't heard that episode or if I haven't actually mentioned it on air um, th- think of like a battle a war um, a, a you know, when, when you're doing surgical triage, you're going to go to those things that are of, of first importance. So, the things that are most critical and most dire, you're going to tend to those. And then the smaller things, like, you know, a broken ankle or um, cuts and bumps and bruises, those things aren't as pressing and can be put off until you're done with the more important things. Um, so, in a, in a similar way, theologically, um, there are these matters of, of first importance. There are these matters of, um, Life and death, really spiritual life and death. Um, So talking about um, Trinity, um, incarnation, stuff like that. But then there are also lesser important. Well, there there are less important doctrines. That's not to say that they're not important. um, But Gavin uses the example of like the number of angels. Um, That might be an important piece of theology but it's not worth breaking fellowship over you're not going to call somebody a heretic because they think that there are three million and lucas thinks there are seven i mean like which there are it's no, <laughs> no, i have no idea how many <laughs> there are but like you know what i mean like it's 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 not something that's important in, in the sense that you wouldn't break fellowship over it like right. you would from somebody who's not affirming the trinity or the incarnation um so i think yeah. as i as i go through this book a little bit more uh it's going to be i think coming up maybe on an episode. Uh, maybe we'll talk about it. Like I don't, I don't know what, it, you know, what that looks like. But it, it is an important book that I think people should read and check out because it would be, um, I don't know. I think it would help a lot of these debates and these yeah. conversations to be better, more charitable, more favorable. I don't know.
1: Yeah. What about you, man? What do you What have you been reading? Well, uh, I started a book last night that I actually can't talk about. You might know what I mean, but nobody else does. But, um. I have, what I will talk about is I have, like I've mentioned a couple times, I've been spending quite a bit of time in a bunch of different confessional foundational documents from different Protestant traditions, um, primarily on, well, pretty much just on what they have to say about baptism. But, I mean, in doing so, I've 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 been interacting with documents I've never, some I had read before, some that I had read many times, and others that I had never even opened up before. So, um, you know, I got, like, the the Belgic Confession, um, the Schleitheim, art, uh, Schleitheim Articles or Confession, the Anabaptists uh, in Germany, um, Augsburg Confession, 39 Articles, 1689, Westminster, Larger, Shorter, uh, Orthodox Catechism, uh, Keech's Catechism, like, all these different um, documents that I've just been sort of perusing... And sort of breaking up what it is they have to say, comparing, contrasting. And it's just been, it's been super interesting. Like I, I don't know if I will at least anytime soon do this, but um, I would highly recommend like just sitting down with a, with a bunch of different confessions from different traditions and just going to where they talk about whatever topic, baptism, the Lord's Supper, God, and just seeing what they have to say. Um, and, and comparing and contrasting it's been a really fruitful exercise that I think is super super duper duperty duperty awesome and one tool that has been super helpful with me not not sponsored but I wish is um, crossways ESV with creeds and confessions is a super cool ESV that that just in the back has a bunch of creeds and confessions as it says on the box um, and it's a it's a really really awesome tool to just have, you know, right there in your Bible, you know, at your fingertips in easy to read font, (laughs) um, a bunch of these different confessions and creeds that come from all different corners of the Protestant world. Um, So um, that's kind of what I've been doing, spending most of my reading time in, um, which is not one thing, but a bunch of things, but I've been been really enjoying it. So um, thanks again for listening. I'm going to pray us out. I'm going to use from the 2019 Book of Common Prayer, um, a prayer for candidates for baptism. That's part of the baptismal service. Please know I am not a priest. I am not baptizing. I'm simply reading this prayer because it's relevant. <laughs> this is not part of a service. <laughs> um, Almighty and everlasting Father, in your great mercy you saved Noah and his family in the ark from the destruction of the flood, prefiguring the sacrament of holy baptism. Look mercifully upon these, your servants. Wash and sanctify them through your Holy Spirit, that they may be delivered from destruction and received into the ark of Christ's church. And being steadfast in faith, joyful through hope, and rooted in love, they may pass through the turbulent floods of this troublesome world and come into the land of everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. (sighs) Long one, but it's a good one. So thank you for sticking with it if you made it this far and listening to this to this episode of the Doxology Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, we are on Twitter or Instagram at Doxology Podcast, and you can shoot us an email at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love your feedback, questions, ideas for future episodes. You can sign up for our newsletter. We would love to hear from you, and until next time, we'll see you.